Well, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Uh, today, I am delighted to have Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. Uh, he's an ordained minister and a cultural theologian committed to applying historic biblical Christianity in the contemporary world. He specializes in philosophy and theology, socio-political science, and the history of ideas. He's married and has five adult children and three grandchildren. Is is that is that pretty accurate there, Andrew? Did I summarize it pretty well? Not pretty accurate. You did a great job, Chase. Okay, cool. Uh, well, on this episode, I'm really excited. I want to kind of give an intro to my interaction with Dr. Sandlin's work, uh, and then let him share some of his story. Um, so I don't know where I stumbled across the Center for Cultural Leadership or your podcast, uh, but I did, and I was so blessed by it. And so I got to attend a symposium um, and, and here's what was funny about it. I came back and told my friends, I said this, uh, when I was there and we were talking about free market, that's one of the topics, if not one of the major topics that came up, we were talking about the free market in a positive way. And I was so used to in Christian spaces talking about the free market and then apologizing for it. <laughs> and it was so nice to be unapologetically, uh, pro free market that I almost felt like, can we say these kind of things? This is, this seems <laughs> Uh, so uncouth to what I'm uh, supposed to do. And then I listened to Eric Kahn's podcast, Hard Men. And he did an interview on pietism. Um, I've been sending that to people as well. I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, and I just found that so eye-opening. You know, the, the whole time I was listening, I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, like what? This is stuff I've been sensing. I've been feeling for years. I grew up in the church. And so I've been feeling those tensions that uh, Dr. Sandlin so, so uh, artfully articulates. And so that's why I'm so delighted to have him here. Um, Dr. Sandler, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Chase. It's been a privilege to meet you, and I knew you were coming to CCL Symposium. I did some sort of investigating on you and your church and just profoundly uh, impressed by uh, your ministry and your writing uh, and um, all you're doing. I'm thankful that those who are a little younger than I am are coming along and uh, carrying the message of the kingdom of God, a comprehensive kingdom in all areas of life. So it's a, it's a privilege to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, I wanted to start off, you know, I've, I've got your bio from your website, um, but I haven't had the privilege of kind of hearing your story of either growing up in the church or ministry, what it looked like for you to uh, to really know Christ. And so I, would you mind sharing some of that to just to start us off? Well, thank you. I'd be happy to. I was, uh, by God's good grace, I was born into a devout Christian home. Uh, my parents... Uh, my mother passed away about three or four years ago, but my father's been a, a Bible-believing Baptist minister for, well, he's 88 now, still in strong in mind and body, and uh, what, 60 years, something like that. So I grew up in the church, a Baptist church, strongly Bible-believing, uh, was converted at, uh, well, I must tell you that uh, I was converted earlier than I can remember, but <laughs> I assure you that I'm trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation, so... I believe it was four or five years old when I trusted Christ and uh, baptized, and by His grace, followed Him the, uh, my entire life. Profoundly grateful for that to Christian rearing and upbringing. Uh, I was educated uh, exclusively in uh, Christian day schools back when they weren't nearly as popular as they are today in the 60s uh, and 70s. There weren't that many of them back then at all. I was educated in Florida in a very prominent nationally known one. Uh, in my uh, late teens, early 20s, I first encountered Reformational theology, uh, broadly in the uh, tradition of, of course, John Calvin, to an extent Martin Luther, 
but even more so, eventually, uh, the thinkers that maybe some of your uh, hearers uh, are aware of, Abraham Kuyper, the noted Dutch Calvinist, and uh, the uh, thinker Herman Duyeveerd and Herman Bovink and Cornelius Van Til, some may have heard of. So kind of a part of that broad tradition. It would include more popularly people like uh, Francis Schaeffer and others, uh, worldview thinkers who believe that the faith should not be limited simply to the individual life and the family and the church, vital though that is, but also to be applied in the culture. So uh, that's kind of my uh, background, and I've led the uh, Center for Culture Leadership. It's a Christian think tank, uh, Christian Educational Foundation. It's uh, 20, what is it, 21, 22 years old now. And uh, we have a number of uh, thinkers and writers that basically uh, try to influence others to influence culture in distinctively Christian ways. So we're about the recovery of Christian culture in all areas of uh, life and thought. So in a sort of short span, Chase, that's kind of what, uh, kind of my background. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, lots of good stuff in there. Uh, I too grew up Baptist. I still am credo Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that, that kind of heritage of having a family raised in the church, raised in a Christian school, I share that with you. And I've been so blessed by it. Um, one of the things on my podcast and, and when we, ha- when I have conversations with people, I try to get more, uh, get to know them a little bit of their academic pedigree. I, you know, I, I had an interview with John frame a few months ago and we talked about the academic captivity of the church. And that, that really haunts me as somebody who's interested in the Academy, who's interested in higher education. I always want to be sensitive to not make that the, uh, kind of like Lord it over people. Uh, it's not, I, I, I kind of agree with frame in the sense that there's a lot of kind of elitism and captivity, uh, of the church in that regard, but I still would love to hear uh, kind of what's your educational background in terms of uh, your doctorate or anything like that. Yeah, that's a good, before I do that, I think that you're right on that. Of course, there is the problem of uh, sort of academic elitism. Uh, of course, there's the uh, opposite problem of a sort of an anti-intellectualism and a pride. Some people think the pride is only on the side of academic elites. Actually, there's almost a perverse pride in anti uh, academic or anti-intellectualism that can be equally mm. uh, dangerous. So, uh, yeah. So um, I um, got a BA uh, in uh, English history and political science uh, from the University of the State of New York, um, and the MA not so long ago now. I have to MA in uh, in English literature uh, from the University of South Africa. I wrote a dissertation on Samuel Johnson's soteriology. And then a doctorate a number of years ago in uh, systematic and historical theology on the law gospel distinction that I wrote for um, Edinburgh University in Edinburgh, Texas, South Texas. In fact, I'll be going down there near that area here in a couple of weeks. Uh, So I like to joke academically, my background is uh, sort of the uh, jack of all trades and master of none. So I've got English history, political science, English literature, systematic theology, and um, ecclesiastical or theology or church history. So all of those, uh, and that kind of typifies my thinking, which is really synthetic, all sort of all of these things sort of put together in a, a Christian worldviewish way. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, yeah, you've, you've been everywhere from New York to, to working through South Africa to working through South Texas. Those are very different uh, environments. Yes. Um, well, one, one topic that I'm curious to know more about, something that came up on my radar, actually through a theologian named Craig Carter, um, the, is the topic of Gnosticism. 
Um, I, you know, in, in my seminary education, I had heard about the, the heresy of Gnosticism, and it was kind of like one of those flashcards you had to memorize, uh, you know, and you're like, oh, that's that was back then. And and uh, Carter, and he turned me on to a thinker, and I can't remember how to pronounce his name, um, a philosopher that writes on politics, scientism, and Gnosticism. And uh, I took that to the beach thinking, oh, it's a short book. I'll knock it out. And then I was trying to read it. And I was like, this is not beach reading. Uh, but it was good. It was good. And so you've you talked about, about Eric, Eric Vogelin. Eric Vogelin. Yes. Yes. Eric, yes. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. Uh, thank you for remembering that for me. Yeah, no, um, I know. I knew which one you were talking about. <laughs> um, and that really opened my eyes to a lot of this stuff. Unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on if you liked my sermons at the time, that wasn't shaping a lot of the way I was thinking and preaching. Um, and so, uh, so I wanted to hear from you when you, when, when Christians think about Gnosticism or hear that word, besides it kind of being a mouthful, how should Christians consider Gnosticism? What is it? Um, and how do we identify it? Yes. Gnosticism, uh, Chase is the oldest, uh, Christian heresy. Uh, in fact, there were sort of pre-Gnostic elements you can see even, uh, uh, in the New Testament and uh, not that the Bible advocated it, but you'll notice John himself refers to those uh, heretics who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, those are pre-Gnostic elements even in the New Testament. Well, after that, there is this essential notion that to creation is defective. Uh, the Christian view is that uh, there is great evil in the world and that the source of that evil is sin. Uh, the Gnostics had a different answer to that. They, too, acknowledge there is great evil in the world. But for them, that evil is the result of creation. Mm -hmm. They have a very um, elaborate uh, cosmology. I won't go into the details because some of them are quite silly. But basically, they believe that a lower deity called the Demiurge, uh, sort of almost himself a fallen deity, not quite, but kind of low on the uh, deity to totem pole, created the material world, and therefore it's inherently uh, inferior. Uh, mm -hmm. Matter is inferior to non-matter or spirit. Uh, well, sadly, that began to infect certain elements of the church. So they believe that salvation is not within human history so much as from history uh, and the material world. And that Jesus came, and that Jesus was not actually a physical being. Uh, Jesus came to provide a special kind of gnosis. That's where Gnosticism comes from. Gnosis or knowledge. Uh, and that the goal is basically to escape from the material world. And that the real you is not really the body, but sort of a, something inside of us. And the goal is sort of the body is, as it were, a sort of a shell. And the shell will be cracked at death. And death, that's why death is very desirable to Gnostics. So, mm -hmm. the, so that this inside thing, some would call it a soul or whatever, can escape and go fly up into the heavenlies to the true world. In that sense, it's kind of platonic. But there is the true world in the heavenlies, and this world down here is very sad and corrupt and so on. Um, Gnostics also, by the way, those in the church, had a very low view of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, is very earthy. The God of the Old Testament clearly is interested in creation. A lot of his laws have to do with eating and sexuality and how we deal with one another in very physical, tactile ways. Well, they didn't like that. So that's kind of the background of Gnosticism. It was uh, attacked in the church and proven to be uh, a heresy by Irenaeus and various others. The sad thing, though, Chase, is there are Gnostic elements, elements of sort of what I like to call soft core Gnosticism that uh, have just persisted in the church uh, and even in the modern church and even in the modern evangelical church. Um, 
the uh, the idea that creation itself or matter is something that's inferior and that sin is basically we sin because we have a human body and that if we can just escape the body we would not really be sinners anymore uh that's obviously false i mean all of us know that perhaps the greatest sins of all are sins of the mind sins of the mm -hmm. spirit in fact that's why our body does sin because mm -hmm. of these the fallen mind and so on but uh, this form of gnosticism uh is pr profoundly dangerous i guess one of the main ways, and we can elaborate on this later if you'd like, but it basically creates in good Christians, otherwise good Christians, evangelical Christians, a uh, philosophy that the faith is largely about escape, escape from this world. And so the goal is basically to get people converted, not worry much about material things, not worry much about, you mentioned economics earlier, economics or uh, science or politics. The faith doesn't have much to do with that, except maybe in a peripheral way. But we spend time reading the Word, being close to the Lord in a vertical relationship, which of course the Bible does demand. But these sort of horizontal cultural things are at best secondary and maybe unimportant and frankly might actually lead us away from God. Mm. And therefore, basically, our goal is to live a good life, get a few people converted into the church, and then all of us one day at the second advent, the parousia, or in some eschatology, the rapture, sort of escape. The goal is to escape and live eternally away from the earth. Uh, the irony is, though, a lot of uh, sincere Christian people, very good people, knowledgeable people, hold that view. Uh, that actually has more in common with ancient pagan Gnosticism than it does with uh, the biblical view. But that's kind of, in a nutshell, the, the sort of Gnostic story. We can elaborate if you'd like. No, that was a great summation. Uh, and, and really, every time I hear uh, you or read about it, uh, and hear the topic brought up, my mind just automatically has so many connections I'm making in terms of how I was raised in the church, the songs we yes. sang, the songs on Christian yes. radio, just the general ethos yes. of spirituality that I had growing up. Um, it was such a struggle for me as a young man to understand my own development as a person. Uh, and, and yet, uh, kind of, there's this self-hatred in Gnosticism, it seems, where you, you begin to hate the fact that you're human. It's an anti-human yeah. point of view. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I tend to see it in a lot of different places. What do you think is, what do you think would be some kind of current manifestations? I, I know I could identify kind of the, the idea that, we sh like you talked about the horizontal relationship and a lot of times people call those uh what they'll say is those are distractions from the gospel right right uh, what, what are some other ways that people kind of uh employ uh, gnosticism today in the church yeah oh there's so many examples of that um i think a, a prime example is a recognition that um and you by the way you brought up a profound point about a there's a whole spirituality associated with this. I think one aspect of that is in recognizing that devotion to the Lord, devotion is largely a matter of my personal, private, uh, internal relationship with God through Christ and the Spirit. Now, I want to say emphatically, the Bible does teach that. We're called to love the Lord God with all of our being. Our hearts are called to be turned to Him. Uh, however, it's not possible to limit uh, the faith to that and our devotion to that. In fact, that very idea, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, might, and mind, 
All of those are basically sort of nomenclature for loving him in our entire being, and that includes our body. Remember, Romans chapter 12 says our bodies are given to be a living sacrifice. Mm. But there is this sort of Gnostic notion of spirituality, that if we could just get away from our body, if we could just get away from our humanity, that then we could be closer to the Lord. Well, that's a denial of, of course, uh, the Bible and of creation. And I guess in some ways uh, that's a, a, a fundamental problem with what I'd like to call Christian or evangelical Gnosticism. Let's think about that word. You and I were both reared in what I would say the, the evangelical church. And that's good. The evangel, what does that mean? The euangelion, the gospel. Well, of course the Bible's about the gospel. There could be no salvation apart from the gospel. But the evangelicals have strongly stressed the redemptive element of the faith. But they have largely marginalized, and in some cases forgotten, the element of creation. Um, so they look at Roman, I should rather, Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2, for example, as sort of a quick preamble to the rest of the Bible. Well, yeah, that's how mm -hmm. things got here. And then we get to the really important stuff when we get to Genesis 3, and then, of course, uh, Matthew with Jesus coming, John 3, 16, and so on. But I'd like to suggest that uh, far from uh, Genesis 1 and 2 to be this little quick preamble, Genesis 1 and 2 establish the cosmic world of the rest of redemption. And I'd also like to say that if you don't understand what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, you're not really going to understand redemption and the cross and the resurrection as you're supposed to. And that's what's been going on in evangelicalism for a long time. Because you see, redemption is not basically salvation to have a sort of private relationship with God and an escape from creation. Far from that. Basically, redemption is the redemption of all that, ha uh, that was colluded, colluded in the fall. And we know that the curse involved man and woman and the serpent and, of course, the entire creation. A creation, though it didn't volitionally sin, nonetheless, because it's so related to man, it also colluded in, if we'd like to say, uh, with, uh, with the curse. Therefore, when Christ died on the cross, and when he rose again, he died to redeem everything that fell uh, in Genesis chapter 3. That means that God in Christ is redeeming our private individual lives, which are vital, and he's redeeming uh, the church, of course, and he's redeeming the family, and he's redeeming education, and he's redeeming politics, he's redeeming the environment, he's redeeming uh, economics, he's redeeming all of these things that have fallen under the curse as a, re as a, as a result of, uh, of human sin. Uh, because so much of the evangelical church doesn't understand what I just said, they tend to limit the faith to what my friend Stephen Perks calls, and it's a severe verdict, but I think it's correct. He calls it a private devotional hobby. Mm. The faith is sort of reduced to uh, sort of um, godly, jazzed, jazzed up. I'm really close to the Lord, and here's the little nugget that I got reading the Word. And of course, that's <laughs> the Bible is the Word of God, and we need to be close to God and zealous for Him. But our devotion is much larger than a privatized relationship to the Lord. So let's go back again and think about this. What is man's initial primal fundamental calling on the earth? Now, we might say, as the Westminster Confession would say, as some other confessions, to love God and enjoy him forever. Well, that's certainly fundamentally true. 
But according to the Bible, how do we do that? Well, according to Genesis chapter 1, to exercise godly, benevolent dominion in the earth. Now, that's mine's primal calling. Now, the fact that we read that, and to modern evangelical ears, that sounds sort of sub-spiritual, that shows how far we've gotten from the Bible. Right. Because we would think that what God should have said at that, well, you need to be close to me and just talk to me every day and pray. Well, of course we should do that. The Bible says we should do that. But that wasn't the prime calling of man on the earth. It's to exercise godly dominion as a deputy, we might say. God, as it were, placed the star, the deputy star, on godly man and woman. It says your calling is to exercise dominion in the earth. Uh, Gnosticism gives a very different answer to that. Your calling is to have a very secret knowledge and a privatized, truncated relationship and then escape from the earth. Now, that's false. A lot of modern evangelicalism holds that view, but that is a form of evangelical Gnosticism, and it's not biblical Christianity. Hmm. It's a strong statement. I, and I, I, I largely agree with it, not just based on my own experience, but my own kind of thinking on this matter. It really hit home for me recently. Here in Boulder, we had the, the terrible fires that, um, you know, we had almost a thousand structures lost. So many people uh, experienced that tragedy. And I, uh, I needed to get up and preach. And I had to yes. pro- provide them with a message of both comfort and truth about yes. reality and the gospel. And I think in a, in a former iteration of my theological kind of leanings, it would have, my message would have focused more on how the material world isn't that important, which is so incompassionate and so uh, yes. pastorally irresponsible. Instead, because I just finished Al Walter's book, uh, I think Creation Regained, yes. uh, by, by your recommendation, uh, the message l- leaned into the Bible more and talked about how tragic it is when yes. you lose material things, how tragic death is, how tragic these things are. And there can be so much more appropriate biblical godly grief and hope offered if we'll embrace a more, uh, I could use the word holistic, I think you use the word cosmic, um, yes. which I, is is great. Um I think people need need that now more than ever. Yes. No, I agree. I think this is true like the tragedy of death. A good example, I mean, all of us have dealt with this, whether it's in the COVID situation or before. I mean, death is a part of the fallen world. It's remarkable how many Christian answers are so facile and under the guise of being spiritual are so superficial. Well, don't worry, they're in a better place now, and death is not something that's all that important, and it's going to come, and we can rejoice, and... But see, Paul doesn't say that. Paul, was yeah. 1 Corinthians 15, speaks of death as an enemy. Death is a terrible thing. Uh, people say that, well, death is natural. Death is not natural. It's anti-natural. It's here because sin is anti-natural. Uh, we need to recognize that. So, yes, there is hope. Paul makes very clear there is hope for those that have died in the Lord. But we don't retain this hope by sort of diminishing the badness of death. It's a terrible, destructive. It robs us of those that are closest to us. And I see what it does to the human body before death. It's a terrible thing. And that's why we can rejoice that death will be, again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death itself will be overcome in the end. And that, by the way, is why the resurrection is so important. Incidentally, this is the problem with a lot of Christian uh, funerals. It's remarkable how today one can go to a funeral and, let's say, one died in the Lord. Thank God for that. Uh, but uh, the minister will say, oh, the important thing is this person has now died and is with the Lord, and uh, he's, he or she is now rejoicing, and we can all be happy. 
But there's often no mention of the resurrection. Well, in the it is true that when we die, our spirit's with the Lord, but right. in the Bible, the great hope is not that your spirit is with the Lord. The great hope is in the resurrection. Right. That we will, because, and understand this point, Chase, and I hope that your viewers understand this. Um, to have a human body is to be human. Yes, mm. we can exist. We can exist without a body, but that's not ideal, and that's not uh, a man in full, if I can quote <laughs> Tom Wolfe in another context. That's not to be a man in, or person in full. To be in full, we have to have the body, and that's why the resurrection is so vital. Uh, you, when we're looking at one another, though this virtual means, uh, you're not just inside you. I'm looking at the real you. You're looking at the real me. This is who we really are. And uh, to have this body, a resurrected body, of course, uh, purged from sin and corruption and so forth, uh, that is the great hope. And also, by the way, according to the book of Revelation, it's odd. People say, well, I'm really glad that I will die in eternity. We'll all be with the Lord, sort of floating up in the heavenly somewhere with harps, as it were, and these sort of medieval, more Gnostic notions. But Revelation doesn't say that. It says quite plainly in Revelation chapter 21, not that we will go to be with the Lord, but God himself in this new Jerusalem will come down and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. New there doesn't mean he throws this one away. He means renewed, like we would say a new moon, a new phase. He purges the physical uh, heavens and the physical earth, and we're living together with God on this earth. Think about the implications of that fact. Creation is so good that God himself is going to live eternally with his people on a new heavens and a new earth. And to anybody who says the material creation is somehow inherently inferior will have to answer the question of why God himself is willing to live among his people there. Mm. So th these, these facts, and you probably are thinking this, I know your viewers are, will often have to recalibrate our thinking. For so many years, we've been influenced by a way of contra-creational, or if not contra-creational, at least a creational neglect sort of thinking that won't allow us to think in these ways. But we must return to this way of thinking to be in line with the Bible. I, I totally agree. I think one of the questions I get uh, when I start preaching in this way, when I start talking about, because I think, you know, in my ministry, we've always been, since I became Reformed when I was in my early 20s, and God introduced me to that, and I went through my whole phase where I was trying to fight everybody on it, and then I got introduced to Abraham Kuyper and like, I, I, I really, I, I love the vision of uh, there's not one square inch of creation, which yes. is mine, a beautiful vision. And so like, it's always been kind of like uh, in the DNA of my preaching and ministry and our ministry here at the well. One question I get though, is when we start trying to go into those waters applicationally and we start talking about these things publicly, um, people go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you know, they're, they're still very much in an individual salvation mindset. Whereas yes. you shouldn't say that, that that will turn off my friend from coming to church, or I don't want to invite my coworker if you're going to say those things from the pulpit. How would you help somebody kind of come along uh, in, a, in, in a pastoral, but also intellectual way to kind of see like, hey, like that individual salvation is part of the problem, part of, part of the reason we got here in our culture. How, how would you articulate that, that for someone? Yeah, I'm glad you're concerned there, Chase, with the pastoral. It's not just an intellectual answer, though it's that. It's more than that. There has to be the pastoral answer. I think for a long time that many people, including many unbelievers, because the church has failed here, I think they've sort of implicitly communicated the message 
But to come to Jesus Christ is to come to uh, an existential relation to him, that he has saved me to change my uh, life as far as my thought life and as far as getting rid of uh, doubt and lust and addictions and so on. But beyond that, he hasn't really saved me to influence the way that I spend money or the role of the civil government, the, how I view the civil government. Or he's not really changing my view of how I should vote. Or he's not changing my view on how I should care properly care for creation or the environment. He's not changing my view on how I should look at entertainment. I mentioned just five things. Of course, there are probably 50 or 100. Right. But you see, really, to say that is, and it, this is, again, a severe criticism, though, I mean, it can be true of all of us. This is a constant battle. Is really to deny the lordship of Christ in all areas of life. Now, if we sort of turn that around, Chase, and we talk with people, Christians, and say, is Jesus Lord? Well, almost everyone will say, well, of course, the Bible says that he's Lord. That probably, that expression, what we say in English, Jesus is Lord, was probably the very first creed of the church. And then you sort of follow up that question with, well, is there an area of life over which Jesus is not Lord? Mm. Well, it's hard for them to answer yes to that question, because then they're really denying the Lordship of Christ. Right. Now, some of them would say, well, he's Lord, but he's not Lord right now. Hmm. One day when he returns to the earth and establishes a thousand-year reign, he hmm. will be Lord. But that's not how the New Testament writers refer to him at all. They say he's presently. Jesus Christ is Lord in Christ, the Anointed One, Christ the Messiah, Lord, Master of all. Well, if that is the case, we cannot limit that lordship to uh, changing our lives in our, to get rid of our personal addictions, to get rid of our lust, to get rid of our uh, anxiety, and say, well, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord over those areas of my life, but he's not Lord over how I'm going to vote or how I'm going to spend my money or my view on how I'm going to respond uh, to COVID or on how I'm going to respond to racial issues. That's, that's a separate issue. Mm. You see, we can't do that because if Jesus Christ really is Lord, he must impact all of these areas of life, even these cultural, I might say especially, these cultural areas of life. That's, right. I think, pastorally how to address this issue. Who really is Lord? Christ died to change not just our will and emotion. He died to also change our intellect. And that's something that John Frame, you mentioned, has made, he made, a, he's made a great point about this. We don't speak much on the sanctification of the intellect. Right. He says, yeah, our body should be sanctified and our will should be sanctified. Our emotions should be sanctified. Well, yeah, but our intellect should be sanctified too. We can't limit Christ's lordship to other things and uh, not apply it to that. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I constantly find myself repenting of and, and confessing to the Lord is my intellectual sin, is my, yes. my unbelief, just like the, the prayer in the Bible, help my unbelief. But looking back on how gracious the Lord is with, uh, you know, for you, it was around five. My my kids are professing in the, uh, faith, and I profess faith around a young age as well. But God is so gracious to save us in such an immature and intellectually, I mean, just childish, uh, not in a bad yes. way either, but just uh, infantile faith, and then develop us over time. There's so much more to believe and know about God. And, uh, and over time, we develop and change. And so I'm constantly going like, uh, there's just stuff. I, there's ways I'm unbelieving right now that I don't even know that God hasn't made me aware of yes. this yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't illuminated to me, but I'm asking Him to, and I think we should all ask Him to to illuminate us 
uh, but he's going to carry us by grace. And so I think that that important aspect of the intellect is so crucial for many Christians because they're just not thinking, uh, right. and that prevents them from seeing a lot of things today. One of the one of the uh, I guess troubles that I think I had with some of this talk, whether about uh, kind of cultural impact or, or voting or that kind of thing is I grew up in a very like politicized or I guess not politicized, but it was like a, you know, the word legalistic gets thrown around a lot. And so mm -hmm. a lot of Christians, are, I, I sense my age are weary of this kind of conversation because they're going, that's the kind of church I left that, right. that right. is kind of dogmatic, legalistic, behavior modification oriented church, which I think has to do more with Arminianism than actually kind yes. of cosmic salvation. Um, how would you articulate uh, kind of like what the difference is between what you're suggesting, which is cosmic salvation and, and, and the more legalistic kind of leanings? Because I sense that in my own soul, where I grew up in kind of that the Christian environment where there are a lot of rules, which is just natural uh, yes. for any child to have rules. Um, how would you help kind of like uh, welcome somebody in and, and say, look, that's not what we're doing here? Yeah, no, that's a me too. I went as much of my background also. I think the important thing to understand uh, is that when you, when you, the Lord gets a hold of your thinking and you're reoriented by the Word of God, you don't get rid of rules. You embrace, if I may say so, God's rules or God's law, which are very freeing. I think the real problem comes in not rules versus no rules, hmm. or not being led of the Spirit or to being led of the Spirit, but rather recognizing that God is the one that establishes the guidelines for our life. I think, you know, you come out of a strongly legal performance-based church that basically you are what you can do, and it doesn't matter what you're like on the inside as long as you sort of look good on the right. outside, change your behavior. That, of course, is uh, false. That's essentially a revival of Phariseeism. Uh, the solution to that problem is not to say, well, let's have a Christian faith without rules. Uh, if you think about it, the the extreme of that is a, just sort of a radical antinomianism that right. actually always invites more rules down the road. <laughs> the yeah. freeing thing about God's rules is, and Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, he says to them in, in Mark chapter seven, "You want to get rid of my law, the law of God, so you can replace it with your own law." That's, That's right. what has happened in a lot of evangelicalism. So a life of obedience, according to the word of God, is liberating. It's very free. I mean, the, we might say what I would like to say, what Walters would say, the rules would start with the creational norms there in Genesis 1 and 2, that man and woman, for example, were created in God's image. All of us are Imago Dei. We can't break that rule and pretend right. that we can step outside of that. We can't break the rule that God created males and females. He didn't create right. among humans. He didn't create anything else. I think what has uh, happened, and this is where I'd like to mention a, uh, a failure of a lot of evangelicals. I think one reason that the evangelical church, um, certainly aspects of it, have been ill-equipped to deal with the strong emphasis on gender fluidity, uh, gender dysphoria, uh, this whole um, uh, strong push to androgyny and so on, is because it is so stressed the importance of redemption and those trusting in Christ that it hasn't understood the prior and more fundamental basis of creational norms. And that's why you have some churches, and not many, but I know of one in San Francisco. It used to be a PCA church, then it became RCA. 
Gradually, they have come to accept um, homosexual practicing homosexuals as members, and the elders released a statement, Chase, in which they said, we had to do this because we are gospel people, and our policy about not allowing practicing homosexuals to be members of the church was sort of causing division and not allowing the gospel to operate. Wow. But if you think about it, that's a remarkable statement. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based in the creation order. The gospel is designed to alter us to the very core of our being and our human sinfulness. Now, think about it. If we define the gospel as simply sort of a, a privatized relationship with God, and the Lord takes to heaven when we die and escape this body and escape the world, that gospel might be compatible with this viewpoint. But a gospel that reorients all of creation to restore it to the way God intended, including male and female as they should be, equal in God's sight, yet um, having different roles and responsibilities, uh, according to the word, it's not uh, that view that they hold is not compatible with that creational gospel, which I believe is the biblical gospel. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a vital point. That's great. Um, well, I've, I've, uh, taken a lot of your time and I so appreciate you being generous with your ideas, thoughts, and reflections. Um, it's been great to have you here on the episode. I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to kind of plug any content you wanted to plug. So where if people wanted to hear more, read more, where, where should they go? Thank you for letting me do that, Chase. So about five or six quick things here. The CCO website is christianculture.com. That's written as though it were one word, christianculture.com. Uh, you can see my blog at Doc Sandlin. Again, like that's one word, docsandlin.com. Uh, you can also just sign up for my weekly e-newsletter. Uh, I think today's was on recovering a regal, uh, regal soteriology, kind of long expression. It's on Substack, so just look up my name on Substack. And then there is my YouTube, uh, you can, you know, sort of sign up, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And then a lot of my lectures are on uh, iTunes. Just put my name in there and you'll see a lot of iTunes uh, lectures. And uh, I'm probably missing something. Uh, but yeah, I think that's, uh, that's largely it. So just kind of do a web search on my name. Don't worry, there are a few people that don't like some things I say, but <laughs> biblical Christians tend to like it. So if you do that search, you'll find it. That's great. And what was the name of your book on prayer? Oh, yes. I hope uh, I like to joke with people. I said, I'm not a best selling author, closer to a worst selling author, but of all my books, that's by far the best selling. It's called Prayer Changes Things. And so I hope you can, if you can only get one of them, um, just get that one. I hope uh, if, if I only wrote one book in my life, Chase, that would, that would have been enough. Yeah, that, that was uh, eye opening for me. I kept telling Kim every time I finish a chapter and enter a section, and I was like, this is so good. This is so good. Uh, it's so biblical and so faithful to uh, historic Christianity. Uh, another book that I just finished of yours, which I thought was so clever, titled uh, Make Christianity Great Again. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was just a really clever title, kind of ripping yeah. off that. We we make jokes about that all the time with anything uh, in right. our lives. that we're like, make this great again. It's, a, it's yes. a clever title. So I would recommend any of those works. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, and yeah, have a great day. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time here on the podcast. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Brian. God bless you and your ministry.